Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are talking about a big game indeed, a game that has spawned many follow-ups, a game that was intended to be something else originally, uh, but we are very glad to have what we have, and that game is Race for the Galaxy. Wait, no, not that. Uh, (laughs) Race for the Galaxy is an amazing one because I think it's a game where when I came into the hobby, its reputation was so great that it was just sort of assumed that it was in it it was already a classic. It's a game from 2007 by like 2011, 12, when I really started paying attention. There were just like these whispers like, oh, race like this game's perfect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is a game with an enormously positive reputation uh, and and one that is widely beloved. But before we get into that, Brendan, give me your rating out of 10 and your slogan for Race for the Galaxy. Race for the Galaxy is a bit like a beautiful gemstone. Its design is refined, articulate, clean, and purposeful. Each design decision carefully made to expand the game's decision space and enable multiple, meaningful, and seamlessly endless possible ways to pursue victory and look at the game itself. Race is a game I think I should love more than I do, though. I'll always admire it for its myriad design lessons it offers, but I often wish I had more fun playing it than I ultimately do. 7.5 out of 10. All right. Um, For me, Race for the Galaxy is kind of the game that when I entered the hobby, I, you know, it it was it was recommended to me, like, if you like this and this games I like, then you'd love Race for the Galaxy and you have to play it. But for whatever reason, there's there's a lot of uh, hype around how difficult it is to learn and, and it being a little dated. It wasn't a game I got around to playing until now though I was certain that when I did play it, I would love it. At the end of the day, I liked it <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite a bit. Um, I think it's it's a really strong game. I had fun playing it, um, but it's not perfect to me. I'm going to give it an eight. Uh, that That's, you know, a strong, a strong game, one I'll keep playing, but not rising to the cream of the cream of the crop for me. This is the sort of stalwart disagreements that you come to an episode of Decision Space for. Jake's taking out his claim on a, a big old 8.0, and I'm just down here in Paltry 7.5 land. That's how much we disagree about games. It's, yeah, it's cl- the classic. <laughs> it's all right. I'm sure we'll find plenty to disagree about in our discussion. But before we do that, let me just give a word to our pre-planners. Those are the folks that like to play along with us in the Discord or just in their homes. Uh, so that they can get more out of these episodes. So if you are a pre-planner or you want to jump in on the pre-planning thing, you should know that next week we will be covering Seven Wonders Duel. Uh, Not to be confused with Seven Wonders or Seven Wonders Architect, which is kind of the new hotness. No, we're going back to the two-player variant, which is Seven Wonder Duel. Uh, So look forward to that next week if you want to play it is available as a premium game on Board Game Arena. Race for the Galaxy, as you mentioned, is a 2007 game designed by Tom Lehman. It plays from two to four players, and it is right now at rank 68 
on Board Game Geek for best games of all time at the time of recording. Wow, let me just stop to say that's pretty surprising to me. You thought it would be lower. 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 Interesting. Just because, I mean, as you know, when you look through the top 100 games on BGG, there's so much that is really in the past three to five years, you know, even in the top 10. And, you know, so many of these games shoot up the list today that I think it's really impressive that this one, this little card game has held on to that 68. You know, that's not even at risk of falling out of the top 100 anytime soon. That's like firmly in there. Yeah, steadfastly. I feel like part of that too is Race for the Galaxy has done a really good job of one, it's a highly replayable game. It just is. So that's something that's, I think, kept it relevant for a really long time. And it's also done a really good job of sort of staying on the forefront of giving people ways to play it. The app implementation has an incredible reputation. Uh, It's on Board Game Arena. There's actually a website with open source AI, a whole nother project. So I feel like it just has this sort of ubiquitous place in the hobby where it is doing what it does so well. And I think what will be so interesting about this conversation too, Jake, is that I admire this game so much and have learned so much about it. But like I said in my intro, I don't always have as much fun as I wish. And I think teasing out why that might be was going to be interesting as we get more into it. The tagline for this game, let me just say, is worlds await, colonize, develop, and conquer, taking advantage of each other's choices. So right there, really hitting you over the head uh, that this is not a multiplayer solitaire game. Uh, There is going to be a lot of interaction going on very core to the game. To give folks a better idea of how to play, let's roll Brendan's rules overview, and then we'll get into our discussion. Race for the Galaxy is a simultaneous choice, action-driven, engine-building card game for two to four players. At the start of each turn, players secretly decide on and simultaneously declare one of five available actions in the game. Then, every player carries out all actions declared by any player in that round. For example, if anyone chooses the explore action, then everyone at the table performs the explore action that round. Available actions include explore, a way to draw or filter for more cards, the game's engine building pieces and currency, develop, which allows players to build out their engines with development cards that might have special powers or allow them to more effectively sell goods, settle, a way for players to build out their engine by adding new worlds to their tableau, which might themselves have special powers and or increase their ability to produce new goods, consume, which allows players to use consume powers to sell goods for more cards or victory points, or produce, which adds goods cards to already settled worlds. Notably, players receive a special bonus tied to a given action if they're the one to call it in a round, incentivizing calling specific actions for the added effect. Each of Race for the Galaxy's 114 cards, 81 of which are unique, have special powers or small mechanical wrinkles that ensure each game of Race for the Galaxy plays out a bit differently as players strive to build out the most effective engine or explore the galaxy more quickly than their opponents as they do their best to maximize the benefits of actions called by their opponents while avoiding calling actions that might help their opponents more than themselves at a given stage during the game. Race for the Galaxy ends when any player has 12 or more cards in their tableau, or if the game's victory point tokens, 12 per player are included when you play any given game, are claimed, at which point the player with the most points wins. All right, 
Hopefully that gave you some idea of what's going on in this game that will help you get the most possible out of this episode. Uh, or if, if you know you already are familiar with the game, then maybe you just skipped right by it. Totally fine. So, Brendan, what do you say we jump into it as we always do in our decision space format and talk about the size, type, and feel of this decision space present in this classic game? It sounds great to me. I feel like jumping off like we normally do with size this is such an interesting discussion with this game because in some ways the design conceit of race, there's 114 cards in the game, 81 of which are unique, is sort of that you could feasibly, the game invites you, forces you to say you can make a viable strategy out of any combination of cards, which in some, some ways makes the decision space feel really tremendously large. I think especially with the fact that it's coupled with the cards are currency, every card can is or can be used to pay for other cards. It creates this decision space that feels pretty large, but I think in general, no matter which direction you go down, which path you go down, feels sort of similar in how the engines run. Um, because the identity of these different sort of paths are fairly similar because everything feels pretty incremental. Yeah, I think there are... Oh, I, I agree with what you're saying. And it feels to me this might come across as incredibly ignorant to someone who's played <laughs> far more than me. But it feels like there are really like two archetypes of tableaus you can build in this game you can go for one uh, that's trying to race sort of the end of the game and you're just trying to build as much as many things as you can to and maximize the points in doing so or you're trying to build an engine that's going to take advantage of more cycles of producing and consuming um, and in the vast majority of my plays it seems like you know you can kind of put any one tableau into one of those two camps or if it's not going well it might be because you're kind of straddling the line between the two um so i agree i think that does make the game feel a little bit samey from play to play just just speaking strictly about the base game and you know in some ways once you have decided like which path you're gonna go down it makes it so that your decision space is really reduced quite a bit. Uh, and it does create scenarios where while you do have a handful of cards and all these cards are, you know, to some extent have different ways you can use them because you could play them for currency or you could try and play them into your tableau. Uh, so technically multi-use cards in, in a very binary fashion. Um, so even though there is all that and there's such varied abilities and varied prices and so on and so forth i find myself playing this game to have a lot of uh slam dunk choices right mm -hmm. where it's like okay well obviously i play this because out of all the cards in my hand this is like the one i can play or the one that furthers the strategy i'm going down uh to an objectively greater degree than any other card in my hand yeah, that's that's really interesting. I feel the game does do things to try to fight this, I feel like, like making the primary scoring cards, the six cost development cards, sort of saying like, maybe you don't commit into a, to a strategy too early, because these are really expensive. So just like sit back and see see what comes your way. And the decisions will still be viable to, to switch paths. And maybe as we progress down this conversation, we could talk about, do we think that this game allows for strategic switching in a way that feels as viable as we wish it did or do we feel really ramrodded into sort of the initial 
decision path that we end up going down based on what is signposted to us by our initial starting cards and our initial starting world. Um, I, I definitely have thoughts on that. But maybe before that, we could characterize the type of decision space, uh, because I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this, Jake. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I feel, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. I think in general, tableau building games are can be categorized broadly into the waxing decision space, the decisions that grow over time. And I think that is present here in that, you know, typically over the course of the game, you'll have more options of what you can do in various phases of the game. Uh, That might strictly be because you have more cards, but it could also be because you have more consume powers Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And in any of the different phases, you're, you might be drawing more cards and just seeing and doing more. So I think if I had to pick one for a general shape of the game, I would pick waxing, but I can also see arguments for dynamic because of what we said regarding once you get down one path, it might be narrowing the actual viable options you have in your hand. Yeah, I, that's very interesting. I feel like, though, it's definitely not a static decision space game by any in any way, shape, or form because of the action selection mechanism of the simultaneous choice. Uh, the way in which turns play out can start to feel sort of similar in that you can feel forced into calling certain options. There's definitely turns in this game where you're doing the thing where you're looking at someone else's tableau and you're saying, okay, in this position, it makes sense for Jake to be the one who calls produce. So I'm going to bet that Jake is going to call produce and Jake is never going to call produce because Jake never wastes his time calling produce. He's always going to force other people to call produce. So it's a dumb bet to bet on Jake to call produce, but you're going to do it. So instead you really want the produce, but instead you're going to pick settle. So you can try to get this world down because Jake doesn't have a ton of cards in his hand. So that's there. And you're, you're kind of making those similar decisions throughout the course of the game. But similarly, those can start to really feel narrowed and start to feel more like choices even, even in that sort of very open pick any any phase. um, And the shape of every round is going to feel sort of different. Right. It, It feels like you can get to a certain state in a game, or maybe you're even trying to get to a certain state in the game where I look at my hand of cards and what I've built and how far progressed we are into the game. You know, perhaps I already have eight things in my tableau and the game ends at 12. And I look at my hand, I say, oh, okay. I just called develop every single turn from here on out to erase the end of the game. And, you know, if in in, in doing that is going to be maximizing my, my score and, you know, advancing the end game state, which I'm trying to achieve. And that might be specific to kind of like this big development strategy. Um, that that can be viable as sort of uh, a zergling rush style. That's I think up Manatee in our Discord coined that. Um, so perhaps that's more specific to that. But it's definitely you know an example of how the game can start to feel like your choices diminish over the course of the game, even I, though your options are growing. Even though your options are growing, definitely. And I th- I'm really glad, Jake, that you chose to position sort of one of the driving decisions and tension in the game as between those two potential end conditions. Because I think race is so much more of an interesting game because of those two separate end game conditions. The one being 12, anyone having 12 or more cards in their tableau, and the other being all the victory point chips are gone. 
Um, I think those two do create some tension, just the existence of them that force the strategic pushing and pulling. Um, but yeah, I, I in, don't know. In our games that we played or because we played a lot with people in the discord and I'm not sure any of them ended with the, all the victory point chips disappearing. It seems like somebody's always going to be, you know, in a position to rush or maybe that's just because, you know, we're all noobs <laughs> in the greater scheme of things. Uh, so perhaps the person rushing should be not right. They should be trying to like audible and slow the game down, realizing that by rushing the end, they're not going to win, but how, you know, and we can talk, we'll talk more about this later, but how realistic is it at that point by slowing down the game, you're going to be able to overtake somebody whose engine is, is reliant upon that production and consumption cycle. Exactly. I feel like that's a big part of it is because your decisions in the game really do depend on everyone else's decisions and the cards are already in their tableau, given how many of them are unique. So someone at the table is always going to be in a position where their engine is slightly behind. And I think that is pushing this incentive and pressure onto them to be the one that says, okay, maybe I can just outrace these people and get more worlds down and more victory point things down as everyone else is focusing on their engines. Just by the nature of us comparing our engines someone is going to be in that position. And oftentimes it won't work, but it feels like it's going to work better than like, oh, I'm going to lap your engine, which I'm not going to do. I'm not right. going to catch up generally. Yeah, I, I had a play of the game recently where I was in position to end the game and in doing so would have secured second place. Yeah. Um, but in, in a four-player game, you know, but being sort of like more oriented towards all or nothing, right? you know, second is the first loser type vibe. <laughs> yep. I decided not to play the card. Um, and it ended up kind of king making in an interesting way where the person who won, who would have won the game had I ended it, ended up getting second. That extra mm. round actually propelled somebody else into first. And I was down in third or fourth place at the end. So it's sort of like, would I do that again next time? Probably not because my engine was just not set up in a, even though myself as a player, like I want to try and do everything I can to win the game if possible. It was, it was just because of the setup of the engine I had, there was basically zero percent chance. I was actually going to overtake that person by giving their engine another time to gain advantage that they had already been gaining over me. Sure. Totally. There's it, it's funny i feel like we're going to keep coming back to these six cost development cards the sort of end game huge point windfalls that can potentially exist i feel like those exist in the design to sort of give you the hope of of like okay given my position is there a card that i could draw into that could give me eight points nine points ten points and help me make that big jump because you can have those turns it's just really rare that like you're gonna it's not in your hand. So what are you going to do? Call Explore. Okay, you're going to pick the bonus option since you called Explore to look for five. So you're throwing a Hail Mary. Then you hope it's a development or a settlement. You draw, a, if someone else calls Develop, you hope you drew one of those big cost developments. Or maybe you're doing the military strategy and you hope you draw this military world that gives you seven points. Um, something like that. It's just, those feel like such edge cases over what the actual decision space is really incentivizing, which is like, at some point there is some amount of um oh my gosh the what's it called um like in magic the gathering when something becomes uh like it's gonna happen no matter what it is inevitability inevitability yes (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I feel so proud of myself for getting that answer right. I'm proud uh, of <laughs> <laughs> So should we talk a little bit about, and we already have, but sort of the, the feel and clarity of the decision space. Kind of let's try and put what we've been talking about into those terms. Sure. Definitely. So I feel like what you're saying, Jake, in a lot of ways to work backwards in this conversation is that as a game of race goes on, the clarity of the decision space becomes very sharp, becomes very clear. Uh, the game starts relatively fuzzy. You're given you know, two worlds and you make a decision. Do you want this world or that world? And six cards that you're going to choose four of to keep. I actually love this mechanism. Um, I sort of wish Race for the Galaxy was maybe slightly more flexible in what it allowed you to do, just giving you a few more choices at the start of the game. Um, though I'm sure there are people that will argue, no, the strength of race is that it forces you to go down very paths, and they're probably right. Um, but just from a playing perspective, the way it feels. So it starts off pretty fuzzy. You don't know what direction you need to go. There's not a lot of information on the table and what cards have potentially come out of play as you've played the game more and get to know which cards are important for certain strategies. Um, so it's pretty fuzzy. You sort of say, okay, there's some synergies between these cards. I'm going to go there and then see what the early game gives me. I'm going to figure out what my early windfall is to get a big bonus of card draw. And I'm going to see what I can do with that and run. And then it comes into focus. Yeah. What you said, I think is so important to understanding what it feels like to play this game because, you know, and it just kind of hit me listening to you to talk. I don't know that many other games that we've covered on this show have such dynamic range in the clarity of decision making. Mm. Um, You know, typically, you know, if you're playing like a Euro game, like the what fuzziness is there, like what elements of randomness, like in Castles of Burgundy, what dice you're rolling dice at the beginning of each turn. And that's what's adding the fuzziness, the decision space. And that's the same throughout the entire game. But here, the dynamics of understanding what you need to do in the game really come into focus significantly the more you play when you think about it at the very first turn you have so little to go off of to predict what your opponents will call as their phase to play it it could be anything so but over the course of the game when you look at people's tableaus how many cards they have in their hands so on and so forth you can really start making accurate predictions or you know predictions with some amount of accuracy on what people are going to do to a significantly larger degree and at the same time what you're trying to do uh to advance your strategy becomes very much more clear over the course of the game so i think pulling that apart and how that layers on top of what is otherwise a waxing and growing decision space is why there is tension there we're saying like yes we can understand that this is waxing but because of the clarity of the decision space becoming so much more clear, it does feel like at times it starts to shrink. Yeah, I, it's very interesting. It's one thing that strikes me about race also that just on this point of how the shape of the game changes is how the simultaneous choice mechanism and the way that this functionally occurs can really change the feel of a given game. And I think this, these two things about the simultaneous choices are what I love most about the game. It's really interesting as an engine building game. It works really well as an engine building game. It's admirable that it plays as quickly as it does as an engine building game. When so many heroes would like you to spend two hours doing this, you could play a game of Race for the Galaxy with people who know it and 15 minutes, 20 minutes, it can be quite quick. But 
I think for me, what makes Race for the Galaxy special is the simultaneous choice mechanism. One, because of the the mind games that it forces at the core of this engine building game of sort of forcing you to look at and think about what other people are going to do, but also two, just how it affects the shape of every round of the game and how it makes it this organic, different feel each time. If you're playing with four people and you all call Explore round one, that's going to create a sort of differently shaped game that pushes you maybe more towards building engines than if someone calls Explore, someone called Settle, someone calls produce and then all of a sudden the game sort of jumps ahead a little bit in terms of how much has happened at that stage in the game and that system is so cool in a game compared to a lot of games where every round is prescriptive this is one round of the game you're going to have two actions and then we're going to go to the next round it's a seven round game you get 14 actions in the game at the end huzzah who who has received the most points and races that way but it just you know jumbles everything up and gives the players a, a little more agency yeah um you said earlier that you wish the game was more flexible flexible and i think that this system is where the game is at its most flexible in allowing you literally to shape the different phases the game will take it also enables uh players to gamble and and take risky Mm. lines which is probably the only way that you can get ahead once you've already fallen behind so you could say you know, my best possible play is to pick, uh, you know, produce in the hopes that somebody else is going to choose develop so that I can play down this world that I need to produce this turn. And if nobody calls develop and you pick produce, it's just could be a complete blowout for you. But, you know, as you evaluate the board state, right? And your position in the game, which is so important. Uh, and, and I think uh, probably the most fun part of this game for me is just trying to figure out, okay, like, where am I uh, in this game? It allows you the flexibility to take risks. And if you lose the gamble, you're definitely going to lose what you're going to do anyway. Um, but it, it, it's nice that the game allows you to take these risks that could pay off for you in a big way. And leads to exciting moments at the table where you can sort of like say, I knew Jake or I knew Joe, you were going to go for that Um, and really feel like you have wind in your sails and understanding the patterns of what other people are doing, which and that's where these. Yeah. And that's like in in our discord chat about this with our pre-planners, right? So much of that chat is like, really? Nobody picked develop? Seriously? Like Jake, you didn't pick develop? Like you would like you have all those bonuses for developing. How could you not? Uh, And so. You know, anything that is ex- inspiring, like genuine emotional reactions to me is a hallmark of good game design. Totally. I also will say about your point, uh, as I've been sort of musing on it, about this transition of the game going from highly fuzzy in the beginning to very sharply clear in terms of the decision space by the end of the game, is I think that's one of the things that really contributes to race feeling like a high flow game if things are going your way. Um, if you get your engine online early and the choices of actions just line up for you, you can really feel a sense of momentum and flow that is blissful and wonderful in Race for the Galaxy. But the flip side of this is if things don't go your way, the cards don't come together, you make a bet 
early on and you place a an expensive development that's going to make other developments cheaper and you just don't draw the developments you needed to be placing for free every turn to try to build out that quick tableau strategy all of a sudden you just feel like you're drowning you don't know what to do you uh, your hand is full of garbage because you don't want to settle worlds with them and you just kind of feel lost and i think a large part of that is that fuzziness to, sh to sharpness in the clarity in terms of what your cards in your hand and what your cards on your in your tableau and everyone else's are telling you to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that might also be something just to keep in mind as we discuss games in the future on this podcast mm. um, in the way that uh, the clarity of decisions and the decision space generally can can shift because I think that is something that definitely has dynamics here too. And just for myself, I had been previously kind of thinking of it as like a, uh, you know, a game has like a little slider, like how in focus are my decisions? And, you know, okay, this game is 50% in focus and 50% blurry, but certainly here it is clear that that slider is moving over the course of the game. And I'm sure that, that it's true in other games, perhaps to uh, a less extreme degree, uh, but it does seem to to have an important effect on you know what it feels like to to experience the decision space. So let's keep that kind of in the back of our mind going forward too. Definitely, it almost feels like too you could chart like the size of the decision space on an x-axis and the clarity of the decision space on a y-axis over the course of the game, and sort of it would be interesting to see how the relationship. Obviously, this is all like perceived objective decision spaces. Their sizes are subjective for the most part except for there probably is an objective size that we just as players don't totally understand until we understand the spaces but it's kind of an interesting thought experiment to, to play with all right well with that meta decision space uh conversation in mind let's let's move forward a little bit and talk about some of the different phases in the game and the first one it would make sense to talk about is explore uh and you had just mentioned brendan how sometimes the cards don't come out the way that you had hoped. Um, and explore is your ability to sort of influence that. You can choose to draw two cards with it when you choose it as your action. And then everyone else is able to, or draw and keep, I should say, two cards instead of just one, which everyone else is able to get. Or you can choose to look at a, a large number of cards, five extra cards, and then still just pick the same amount as everyone else. Um, how do you think this game does at sort of mitigating the luck of random draw through this explorer action? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I, I feel like it, it's hard to have this discussion without talking about the, the greatest pro and greatest con of this mechanism overall, I think, which is that we're all tied up in this together. We're all here together. My ability to get an edge in terms of card draw, in terms of tempo gain, is so small. I'm only getting one more card uh, from the explore mechanism if I'm choosing that bonus. If I call explore and then I choose the bonus of drawing one more card and keeping one more card than everyone else, I'm also allowing everyone else at the table by calling explore to draw two cards and keep one. So I'm only getting one more card than everyone else. That's really inefficient compared to like selling a gene good or a rare materials good from on a windfall world or something like that, where I could potentially be getting like three or four cards from it. Um, so it feels pretty constricted. And then the other bonus of draw five cards is huge. You get to sift through and look at a ton of cards, but you're not getting any tempo advantage compared to everyone else. You're just gonna keep one still. Um, so to me, this option 
feels like a, a lure, a bait, a trick, a trap, uh, a Hail Mary for the end of the game where you really need that one development card. And you know that if you get that uh, Galactic Empire card that gives you bonus points for every point of military you have, the game will come together. And you just haven't drawn it and no one has it yet. So you just, okay, I'll call Explore and I'll, I'll go fish. To me, it feels like that. What do you think, Jake? How strong do you think Explore is in terms of allowing you to mitigate that randomness some? Yeah, I definitely share your sentiments that the small advantage of getting one extra card uh, is feels very slight. It yeah. always feels good. And you know that because whenever you're playing the game and you're not the person who called Explorer, you're like, oh, great. You know, there's there's no chance that you'll ever, you know, except for perhaps like the very last turn of the game or something. There's basically no time in the game where you won't be pleased to being able to look at two cards and keep one. Yeah. Whereas uh, in any other phase, there's a good chance that pending your tableau and setup and what you have in your hand, you might not be able to take advantage of it at all. So taking anything else as the active player, you'll get a bonus from doing something you presumably need to do. And there's a good chance that at least somebody around the table won't be able to take advantage of that phase at all, or uh, won't be able to, you know, very much. It'll be a much lesser degree than the explorer so yeah i mean it's definitely not one i like to call very much i wonder though if the drawing five is it's something that the better you are at the game the more you'll be able to like maximize knowing when to do that i still don't think it's something you want to do all the time but i could see in a super advanced high level play where you really know what is available in the deck uh, and and the upside of getting a certain thing and your odds of drawing those cards like there, there's probably like one time in a typical game of race when it would really behoove you to try and find something that's going to super speed up your engine or you know be the reward for the engine that you're already building but for me playing the game for the first time even after playing it i don't know how many times we played 20 or 30 times i don't feel like i know the deck enough to know when to take that shot so I just don't ever pick that. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jake. And I'm I th- also think that these bonus actions are one of the the real gems of Race for the Galaxy. These sub actions f- where you get the bonus for calling the effect. But I do think a lot of times people reference the graphic design as being the barrier that makes race hard to learn. And I think it is. But I will push back and say, I think the graphic design is actually quite strong. And once you play it four or five times, if you have someone who can teach you the visual language of race, you're going to get it. But in some ways, I think some of the other mechanical complexity that people push up against is the sub-action nature of these things of like, okay, so I called Explore, so I get to do what? And I could see how there's just a lot of potential choices, which helps the decision space. It makes it much more interesting of having the sub-action of, okay, I'm going to call Explore, and then I have the built-in decision. Do I want to draw one more card and keep one more or draw five more? I like that. Um, But I think that also, that complexity has to justify itself. And I think in race, it does. Should we talk about develop? Yeah. yeah. The last thing I'll say on Explore, though, uh, just to the discussion of like random cards, it definitely matters if you get cards that fit with your strategy naturally um, or not. Because even if you're taking the draw five to hopefully get something that is really good for your engine, somebody else around the table, especially in a four-player game, 
is already has cards in their hand that are just naturally flowing with their with their engine they're already trying to do and don't have to take that action so like it feels like almost no matter what is putting you behind the eight ball just a little bit and i certainly have had games on both sides where it's just okay i keep getting the perfect cards that go with the six cost development that i kept in my opening hand um and you know i you like you said you just flow to the end game and run away with the game and i've had games where Oh boy, you know, just nothing that I'm getting is really fitting with the starting world I got or, or or whatever. And you can't do a lot. So it is a game, I think, that certainly is a card game where, you know, you can have kind of failed games or super successful games just based on the draw of the card, which isn't something that bothers me. Uh, my number one game of all time, Bruges, is is exactly like that. Sometimes you get cards that fit together really well and sometimes not so much. Um so I just think, put it out there, some people will love it, some people will hate it, but it is a game that has really high highs and really high lows. And that's something I love, but I don't think that Explore, it, it, it mediates that in a way that really matters. When, I think part of the reason why that is the case too is because, because of the fact that everyone is getting the effect. It just blunts the potential for any one of these core actions to really make a huge difference. It starts to be your identity on your tableau that's differentiating you, right? So you play the card that disincentivizes everyone else from calling, uh, I don't know, calling settle or develop. I can't remember a specific card, but let's say there are cards in the game where like when someone calls develop, I get to draw a card. All of a sudden you've disincentivized that a little bit. And that's really the way that you get to interact. Outside of that, it's hard to make up by calling specific things any sort of edge because the edge lives in not having to call things and forcing other people to do it for you or trying to do that. To right. It's like how idea. often you're able to take advantage of other people's actions profitably over the course of the game, much more than picking the right action on your turn, right? Yeah. That's just one of four different actions taken so you could win that interaction right by picking something good but if you can't do anything on everybody else's turn then you're just falling further behind um yeah so certainly certainly not easy to make up ground in that way but yeah let's move on and talk about develop so this is how uh you play developments in the game which are one of two different card types in the base game one being worlds and the other being developments that are kind of going to uh, increase your player ability in some way kind of uh, allow you to diversify uh, I, I differentiate yourself from other players at the table by improving any of the phase powers when you select them uh, making things cost cheaper scoring points it's really all over the board yeah, and this, the bonus effect for calling develop is it just reduces the cost by one. Again, that's that incremental nature of everything in race in a lot of ways, um, where the effects really do change your identity. If you get down a development that changes the cost of developments, it can really incentivize how you're going to play the game. But again, it's pretty incremental, right? You're not doubling the effect of certain card values or anything like that. Um, right. Yeah. But- and I. Go for it. Yeah, so but the incremental nature does mean if you play a development that allows you to draw a card every time you call the development phase uh, or play a development, you know, all of a sudden it could be picking the development, right? It gives you a bonus of three cards. And you could essentially just say a card is the standard value in things. So, you know, if 
by calling explore you're getting a one card value at best you double it here sure. you're, you're doubling it and the difference between one card for development which i already mentioned and one card for explore is that some people around the table might not be able to play a development at all or choose not to so in that case uh you're you're getting just pure value over those players as opposed to potentially getting a small incremental value better than somebody else definitely and develop is also interesting in the way in my mind that it interacts with some of the different potential strategies in the game where sort of like the big military strategy there's cards that uh oftentimes the military strategy is focused on playing worlds that give you a bonus for more military and you're chaining those worlds together but there are some military developments that give you like plus two to your military that can be really effective and incentivize the military player to call develop early on um and i think that to me, cards like that are where the thoughtful design really comes into play with Race for the Galaxy, because I do think the card design in the base game, we're only talking about the base game in this episode. We know there's tons of expansions and arcs of expansions that are intended to play together, uh, which I think is part of the beloved nature of race is just how much racing you can do. There's so much content for this game. But I think the card design in the base game is so effective because it really at least tries to give players pursuing any strategy a reason to call these different actions at different points in the game, which is really important because you you don't want the early game to be something where people are only calling explore and only calling develop. All of a sudden, the fun mind games just fall out. Yeah, I found myself pursuing development-based strategies um, probably most frequently of anything else. For whatever reason, that just kind of intuitively seemed to be where my mind was at with the game. So I, I really like this portion of the game and it's fun to have a, you know, a tableau that is based around, you know, gaining more and more better powers as opposed to worlds, which is the next phase, uh, the settle action. And that's how you play the world cards down from your hand. Worlds are interesting because they come in a lot of different types too. There's uh, regular worlds, which are just worlds generally tied to a specific good. There's four goods in the game. Uh, blue, brown, green, and yellow, or novelty, rare, genes, and alien. And these thematic ties kind of matter, but not really. Um, they There are also windfall worlds. These are worlds that can't na- produce automatically when produce an action we'll call later is called uh they only produce a good when they first come in and then if you have another card that makes you produce on a windfall world then there's uh military worlds that kind of texture into this at well as well where you don't pay cards to place worlds worlds you have to generally pay cards like you do developments to cover their cost military cards you pay with your military and if you reach a certain threshold you just get to slap it down and yippee i'm climbing the ladder of the military um which I, I I don't know. I think that worlds can be really fun because some of the ways that you can draw the most cards come from producing goods on worlds like the gene goods or the alien goods. And then if you use the trade power on consume, you get this huge windfall of cards and that's exciting. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just this dual nature of sort of everything in Race for the Galaxy where you have develop and you have settle and there's texture to the cards that are in play. Yeah, yeah. The worlds are fun too because like they really just like thematically like they really come in all different shapes and sizes. There's one cost worlds that are worth like zero points or one point and you know there are worlds that cost 
five or seven seven uh, that can give you seven points or five points so you know one strategy could just be like the big world strategy which i tried to go after a couple of times where you're just drawing cards and without really uh synergizing too much you're just like slapping down the big worlds that just give you a lot of draw points for for playing them so you know i think in that sense thematically it does do kind of a good job at like creating a very you know a varied universe that you're exploring um you know and it it in it also adds i think replayability because so many of these worlds that you could draw are just like absolutely not viable mm. um based on where you're at in the game you know even two or three turns into the game you you get a military world that costs seven and you have no military okay that's just going to be currency for you which is fine you know no big deal but it also kind of sticks in your back of your head like i want to try and play that card sometime um and and so i think uh it, it definitely does create these different paths to go down in the mind of the player and maybe this is a good time to talk about the thematic ties of race and the signposting of the themes and i think that Race is a really interesting game because I don't think anyone pitching this game would be like, come over to my house and we're going to play this highly thematic game called Race for the Galaxy. Um, but I do think that the the theming that exists, it's clear that many of the cards are designed from a top-down perspective and what they're trying to do. Um, you get a sense for what the name is, what they're mechanically doing for you within the systems of Race for the Galaxy. Um, and oftentimes the the names of them are signaling that certain cards are going to work well together. You'll get, you know, your mining colony is going to work well with your terraforming robots and uh, just sort of these sorts of things in a way that I think makes the game more approachable and easier to play that I, I really enjoy. And the more I've played it, the more I love the sort of emergent narratives because of the thematic nature of some of the cards of what was my, what is my race for the galaxy? What is my, the race I've run look like? That said, it doesn't get much more low environmental theme, <laughs> low mechanical theme, and low decision theme than this. Maybe you could, like you're saying, like there is some mechanical tie-ins that do help you understand the rules a bit. But in general, I mean, right, I think wasn't this game designed to be Puerto Rico the card game at first or something along those lines? If that's your game's backstory and, and now you're... Uh, universe game it's like you know you're not coming in super super strong on the thematic charting as we do definitely tom lehman actually has been really forward with that story which i think is really cool so there's a really good gdc talk game developers conference talk by tom lehman that happened in 2018 where he talks about race for the galaxy and its design history and if you're a fan of race or you'd like to know more i think it's a really insightful talk from a game design perspective and also in the history of race for the galaxy and tom talks about how essentially race for the galaxy in a different version of the game was designed in three months as a backup version of San Juan, which was the follow-up to Puerto Rico, the card game version of Puerto Rico, the game kind of solves some of the problems that existed in the prototype of San Juan that existed. And the designer of San Juan sort of said, oh, great, I'll take those pieces and I'll use them to fix my prototype. And then Tom Lehman ended up getting a royalty for San Juan and then sort of developed race even further from there and differentiated it. Um, so it's a game with a pretty interesting history. It kind of got mashed up like the game that he made as a potential prototype for San Juan um, with a collectible card game that he'd been working on. So it shifted from Earth to the stars and gained some other mechanics. And it's, it's cool sort of hearing the development of the game. 
Yeah, and then it came full circle with New Frontiers, right? So Race for the Galaxy was going to be uh, Puerto Rico, the card game, and then it became now Race for the Galaxy, the board the game. board game, yep. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. it's just funny uh, the way that sort of came full circle there. Uh, really quickly, let's finish the phases since we've started this far down the path. Next up is Produce. I don't know... Uh, did we talk about consume? Oh, sorry, sorry. Next up is consume. Uh, and consume is a tricky one because it has two different consume powers that really are pivotal moments in any game. Uh, the first is to sell for extra cards. Um, so that, as Brendan mentioned, that gives you the ability to sell your goods for between two and five cards, I believe, depending on the rarity of the good you're selling. And the other one allows you to get double the points for consuming that round which if you're going the the archetype of production and consumption that's how you score sometimes just crazy amounts of points throughout the course of the game uh, and and you can just once you get to a point where you've hit this uh sweet part of enough production worlds you can just go consume produce consume produce consume produce as long you know until the end of the game really and maybe you're making eight points every time you do that or, or, or maybe more, more yeah. or yeah. more um i think that this is another example of what i'm talking about about the really clean design of all of these effects that show sort of the legacy of race for the galaxy sort of the idea of starting out as puerto rico becoming san juan and the iterative nature of the design of this game because consume is so smart because if you don't have a strong incentive for someone to call consume, calling consume would be a terrible idea. Why would I allow everyone else to use the consume powers on their cards unless I'm getting a relatively large benefit for doing it? So locking this ability to trade cards for really what feels like in the systems of Race for the Galaxy, obscene amounts of cards. If I play a, a alien windfall world and then I call tr uh, consume and I use the trade power and I can sell that one good for five cards, it's ridiculous. It feels great. And likewise, double, this is one of the only times in the game where you get to do anything double in Race for the Galaxy. And it's tied to victory points. So that's that's huge. And it feels good. Like you and said. when you think about all the other powers, you know, that for calling action that we've been through, they're all so incremental. It's one card here, one card there. And now all of a sudden it's five cards or potentially like eight points. Um, so it's just like, a, a, that, I think that's why it feels like such a pivotal moment when you call this, because it just gives you the ability to do so much more than any other power. Uh, so finally, produce production. And it's really important choice that production comes after consume. So Huge. you can never, you can never, there's so many times the game like, oh, I really want to consume, but I need to produce first. And that's horrible because it's like, that's two whole turns before you'd be able to. Uh, and, and a lot of times you might decide not worth it. That's going to take too long. I'm just going to do something else. Uh, hopefully somebody will call produce for me yeah and that's so key because it's if you gave produce a huge power and it came earlier to incentivize calling it yourself it would be too much of sort of a positive agency loop right like if i'm already incentivized to call produce i'm going to benefit from it a, a ton so if i get a bonus on top of that that's going to propel me forward too much um but the flip side is is okay then how do you incentivize people to do it it's going to be incentivized already. Just put it last so you can't ride other people's coattails on it too far. And just no one will call it waiting for everyone else to. You at least, if you call it, 
get an equal chance of exploiting a potential consume or calling consume yourself on those goods before someone else has an opportunity to call consume, force you to consume your goods and not get a bonus from it or something like that. That'd be awful. It's yeah, it's devastating. And and then it is interesting too. We didn't I didn't mention that for the consume, but you have to consume if you yep. can. So you can't just sit on your rare alien technology good. You might have to sell it for a single point if you uh have put yourself in that position, which I most certainly have. And yeah, I can confirm does not feel good. And that's the tension that's so good, right? That's the tension around the simultaneous action selection where you see the good and you're like, oh, I should just call. If Jake doesn't call consume here, he's toast. So he's probably going to call consume. But what if he doesn't? And I call consume and then he's really toast. Uh, And to me, that's where the fun of race does potentially live. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I wanted to circle back to in the discussion is, and, and we have talked about it a little bit, but the idea about sort of strategic agency, yeah. how much you're able to pick your path and how, how much you're able to potentially shift your path. Can that be done profitably? So Brendan, I know you have thoughts on this. I want to kind of give you the floor. So, okay, there's like two primary ways that I feel like we have to approach this. So there's going to be the group of people who say, This is a card sifting game. You get to see tons of cards over the course of the game. You have so much agency because you're seeing so many cards over the course of game and choosing what you want. And then there's going to be the group of people that say, no, it's clear for my game start matters immensely. What I am given and my starting hand, my one world and my four cards define so much of the potential of what I can do in this game that it doesn't matter how much I end up seeing by turn four, so much of what people's engines are going to be is decided by turn three. Um, and I think I, Jake, tend to fall on the camp of, for me, I wish that I could produce a more reliable strategy of what I want more often. I do think that it would make that game end more quickly. Um, so maybe within the system, right, if I'm always able to have the agency to build an efficient engine or div- or put slap down cards every single turn. It's just going to accelerate the game. And I want race to be about the length that it is. So maybe just the way that the systems came together, there wasn't a lot of room to tweak the amount of agency and you need some tension, right? You don't want the game to just be like this game. I'm going to play the gene strategy and I will use it effectively. Race is a tactical game and the tension feels good. But I think on average, I feel a little bit more uh, beholden uh, is the nice word. Uh, sunk by, stymied, uh, damaged by a potential bad hand at, to start than I wish I did. I get my uh, two worlds, my six cards, and I'm like, ah, there's not a lot of synergy here. I don't know how to dig myself out of a hole besides hoping that like I'm going to play this windfall world and I hope when I sell the good from it, it pays off big for me. Mm-hmm. I'm on the what same page think? as you with thinking that the starting cards matter a ton. I know that an expert at this game will beat me 10 out of 10 times. So that's not really a commentary on the skill ceiling of the game. But I have to imagine that at a table of similar skill set, that it just matters tremendously. That said, it's not something that bothers me. I actually think it's an asset to the game because I like games that give you the potential for high highs and low lows. And especially when you have a 15 minute game, like who cares if you get a combination of cards that doesn't really go together and somebody else gets the perfect cards and runs away with it. It's like they, that was interesting. Let's 
do it again. Um, and it's, I think I think that's just fine. I think it's also your point about it being a quick game justifies it one hundred percent. And then also, I think it is sort of what leads to excuse me discussions in our table talk channel and our looking for games channel of our discord this week where every time we finish a game people are like another another can we play another do you want to play another it is that sort of the high highs and the low lows and and yeah it it works for the game that it is and it's it's clearly served it really well i'd be really curious to see how the game played with one extra world and two extra cards or something what does that look like and i'm sure it was tested and this is probably the yeah and it it probably right it does to some extent it's going to reduce the variance in the game right it'll make the high highs lower and and the low lows higher you know and if you did five starting worlds and 12 cards in your hand right that's gonna reduce it even more to the point where people get everything they want and i think that like when you think of games that are infinitely replayable and beloved especially in the card game space like you notice a lot of trending towards variants. Like look mm-hmm. no further than like Magic Gathering, the you know great grandfather of all collectible card games or dueling card games. That not all, I don't know, but you know what I'm saying. Like that is a game that you can hit home runs and you can <laughs> not get to play at all. Um, and obviously that keeps people coming back. So I think the same is true here. It's also clear that the thesis of race in some ways is strategic variance, that no two games should play out exactly the same. And limiting the potential at the beginning is a cost, but it leads to the fact that you're really not very often going to have two tableaus that feel exactly the same. And I agree, that's a huge benefit of the game. And that's what keeps it so interesting. There's there's no end to how many interesting combinations of of sort of builds that you can piece together except for like i'm just going to build big military and hope the cards come to me and they kind of all slap down and that timmy strategy feels great when it works yeah right yeah and it at the same time i think like for me the tension i'm having with like well why then don't i like love this game as much as some of my favorite games uh even though it really does speak to me and like you know i love games with high variability i love card games that have multi-use cards um yeah you know and so many things about this game and i wonder if it like kind of comes back almost a little bit to like the arc of the game kind of leaves me a little bit underwhelmed like it just feels a little bit stunted compared to to some other games like i don't really stunted how like I don't feel like I accomplished that much. Mm. I feel like I am always kind of like the overall arc of the game is always following like a very similar arc, even if, you know, each game is different because you see different cards. Like, I feel like people are still trying to get a production and consumption engine going, or they're trying to race the end of the game and maximize it at least you know, those are the two paths to victory that I've found so far. Um, and so, you know, for me, I just, when compared to, you know, other games kind of in this weight class, you know, and I'm even going back to Magic, a game, uh, you know, that takes a similar amount of time to play, just a two-player game. It, 
it feels like you get more of like an interesting like story in the game. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think I'm just, think I'm just also, spitballing here. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I think that's what pushes up against this for me too. It's like, okay, so we've established that part of the fun of race is that there's and no, no same tableau is going to lead to a winning strategy because you could never pull those pieces together. But if all the pieces kind of feel like different sides of the same coin, it all starts to feel the same, right? There's four types of goods in the game. Great. That's awesome. And the cards that they work with are different, but they all kind of do exactly the same thing. And, and my engine kind of feels sort of similar. And in my military strategy, I'm just building up. And I think there's this necessity that everything stays kind of tight because we all come back together for, at the synchronization point of choosing our actions. But what develop means to you versus what develop means to me when it's called almost always means about the same. Maybe I get to draw two cards and maybe you get to place a development at minus two cost. And functionally, yes, that's huge, but I'm not building a space station. Like I'm not doing this crazy other different thing where I'm, my game is fundamentally changed. We're all doing the same game over and over and over. And yeah, that's that's a lot of card games play that way. But I think that's why the incremental nature of that and the fact that you don't end up that different, you end up a little bit more incremental is part of that for me. Yeah, right. And it's like the big moments in the game are, I can't believe you didn't call develop. I really thought you were going to do that. It's compared to like, do you remember that time when I played this world and that like triggered this thing like those kind of stories i think don't really like race doesn't the system of race does not sort of create those type of stories about like yeah. you know it's like and then i played the seven the seven military world and it's like okay yeah because that's like the natural kind of conclusion of the engine you were building right it's like the actual game, like what's interesting is the interaction between players, but not what's actually happening on the board. Definitely. And even with that said, I can see how in some ways Ray should be a slam dunk for both of us in terms of the simultaneous choice, because the two of us are, are love simultaneous choice games. We both come from fighting game backgrounds, which are built on simultaneous choice. We both love that mechanic in El Grande. Um, but I think to some extent, like as much as I enjoy this mechanic, there's something about the way the simultaneous choice plays out and some of the effects that you can affix to the simultaneous choices. Tom Lehman in his GDC talk actually talks about this as blunting, which I think is a good term. This idea that I don't hit you with an axe or anything, but I just weaken your axe by making it less effective for you to use it because you give me a bonus if you do it, which I think that's part of where like the fun kind of gets deflated a little bit. And that because, is like fundamental. That's such a good analysis, right? Because it's fundamentally less cinematic and exciting than hitting yes. somebody with an axe exactly you blunted the decision space yeah yeah it's really apt language and i think that also and it works really well in race right like that's partially what helps you have a comeback is like oh jake is trying to produce all the time i'll slap down this thing that lets me draw a card every time produce is called maybe he's going to think twice in terms of his strategy maybe he'll try to pivot a little bit but in terms of the excitement factor it falls down a little bit because then it's just like oh now I shouldn't do this thing I want to do because it helps it helps Jake over here. Well, maybe what we're really kind of coming to is that we're just asking for race expansions uh, and they already exist and we should explore them more in the future. Because I'm just thinking like, oh yeah, maybe like a little bit more like take that would be cool in this system. And I don't know 
because I haven't explored enough, but I imagine there's got to be something that approaches that in, in one of the many expansions for this game. It feels like, and if the reception to this episode is strong enough, our conversation has been good enough, this feels like a topic we could and probably should come back to. Yeah. More Race for the Galaxy coming potentially soon. If you'd like us to explore those expansions and, and potentially do another episode on Race for the Galaxy, please let us know. You could let us know by leaving us a review on iTunes. That would actually be the best thing ever if you want to help our show grow and support us. That's pretty much our biggest ask right now. But also, we have a very active Discord where we're constantly playing games and talking about games with good, friendly people. You can join us there and and let us know what you think about the episode there as well in our episode discussion channel. We always include a link to our Discord in the description for our podcast. If you don't know what Discord is, it's just an online forum, basically, for chatting. And you can also interact with Decision Space if you're enjoying what's going on. You want to jump into the conversation, but you're not using Discord. You could talk to us on Twitter. We have a Twitter at Decision Spa. I have a personal Twitter at BurnsideBH. And Jake has one too, at Jake Freed, F-R-Y-D. Reach out to us there and let us know what you think about the show. Or check out our blog on BoardGameGeek. We post our episodes every week. And we also create forum posts on the games we're discussing Excuse me, discussing generally uh, to have a more in-depth discussion with all of you about the decision space of those games as well. So if you listen to this episode and you would like to participate, check out the Race for the Galaxy forum. You might, on BoardGameGeek, you might find a discussion topic by yours truly. And speaking of reaching out, we, as always, want to thank Hembry for allowing us to use their song, Reach Out, for our intro and outro music. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode, and we will catch you next week. Have a good week. Get ready for Seven Wonders Duel. Bye, y'all.